Welcome to Done and Done. I'm Alicia, your hostess on this podcast journey, All Things Dominic Dunn, where nothing is linear and everything is connected. Thank you for joining our investigation today, and do I have a story for you, friends? We are taking an international departure this season, which is all today. All the episodes in Season 5 dropping for you in one big dollop as we head across the pond to explore the mysterious vanishing of Lord Lucan, the very posh playboy aristocrat, given name Richard John Bingham, with really just about every hand in life dealt in a mostly positive way. A lot going for him, really. Lord Lucan does have one famous hand at the gambling tables, which will provide him with his nickname, Lucky. Lucky Lucan. See, Lucky might not have been as lucky as his name suggests. Adding in his own choices in life as we all do. It is on November 8th, 1974. Lord Lucan disappears. Out of here. Just simply vanishes off the face of the world. Troubling about this quick goodbye Lucky thing, his ghosting of the world is just hours after his children's nanny has been found murdered in Lord Lucan's about-to-be ex-wife's home. Lord Lucan and his Lady Veronica Lucan have been going through quite an ugly divorce and custody battle after a terribly unhappy decade of marriage. It is terribly suspicious timing for the absent Lucky. Hours after the crime, Lucky's just gone, not to be found. Unless you are Dominic Dunn, on the beat of Lord Lucan's vanishing from November 8, 1974, our man Nick will get on this investigative beat once his writing career is in full swing in his Vanity Fair days. Dominic Dunn writes a piece for Vanity Fair in May 1993 called The Gentleman Vanishes. Dunn's work will come 20 years after Lucky's Irish goodbye on a cold, wet, and weary November 8, 1974. And our man Nick has questions. He will ask many, many questions, only getting some answers. But there is something awfully fishy when it comes to the swinging London high society set that Lucky Lucan is running with. His friends are titled folks. They are the country party set. When they aren't in town gambling and drinking their days away at John Aspinall's famous Claremont Club. This London high society set, the Mayfair set, some call them the Eaton Mafia. They are interconnected and tightly wound in a lot of ways. Through blood or marriage, as the British aristocracy is ought to do. Dominic Dunn thinks the Claremont set is covering up for their friend Lucky, or at least holding way more knowledge than they ever reveal. Dunn explains in The Gentleman Vanishes, I have always been fascinated by the Lucan case, fascinated that a man of such distinctive looks, whose picture was on every newspaper and news broadcast in England and most of the world, could literally vanish off the face of the earth. It all happened a long time ago, but this irresistible tale of gambling, 
and violence in the aristocracy continues to intrigue, haunt, anger, and even frighten certain persons close to the missing Earl, who know more than they have ever alluded to. At the end of last year, I traveled to England to look into the oft-told story one more time. What I've found was that even after nearly 20 years, there is a reluctance on the part of the people who might know something to talk about it, or if they talk, to be identified. The former wife of one of the men closest to Lucan, who has since married and divorced another man, reacted with something akin to rage when it was suggested to her by a mutual friend that she speak with me about the case. Never, she said, it was reported to me. I will not talk about it. No one in London will. That's not quite the case. Dominic Dunn will get a few folks to spill the beans and make his own conclusions from this visit into international waters. In this series of Dunn and Dunn, we are going to explore the life and the vanishing of Lord Lucan, his marriage, and sordid courtroom battles with his wife, too. We're going to cover the events of that terrible night in 1974, when Lucky's plan, that he has worked out so carefully, goes so very badly. We're going to investigate all of Lucky Lucan's upper-crust friends that might have had a reason, or a will, or a way to keep Lucky hidden for decades. Dunn writes, There are two possible conclusions to this story. One is that Lord Lucan is dead. The other is that he's alive. Both theories have their supporters. Let's investigate. Dominic Dunn, in writing this piece for Vanity Fair, opens The Gentleman Vanishes by referencing a photograph, writing, The man in the photograph with Lady Annabelle is the protagonist of this story. He was no ordinary run-of-the-mill killer. He was Richard John Bingham, the seventh Earl of Lucan. Lord Lucan was tall, dark, and handsome in a sullen sort of way. He was a yachtsman, a winter sportsman, a golfer, a professional gambler, a dashing figure by all accounts, the perfect example of an English blue blood, albeit one with a flawed background. The third Earl of Lucan, his great-great-grandfather, directed the catastrophic charge of the Light Brigade, one of the most famous disasters in British military history which resulted in the massacre of half a division during the Crimean War, bringing disgrace to the name of Lucan. But the seventh earl of our story eclipsed the third earl in negative fame when he was tried in absentia for murder, the first English peer to be named as a killer in 200 years. How do we get there? What is the history of Richard John Bingham, the seventh Earl of Lucan, lucky to his friends? Richard John Bingham is born December 18, 1934, the second child of the sixth Earl Lucan, 
primogeniture reigns in the British aristocracy, Richard John is the eldest son. So it is to tiny baby John, as he goes by in the family, that the Earl title will be handed to, at the point in our story, it is handed to him. John's father is George, the current 6th Earl of Lucan, and an Anglo-Irish peer. The Earl of Lucan is an Irish peerage, created in 1795 under George III. Again, the most famous and infamous of the Lucan earls, until Lucky comes along, was the third Earl of Lucan. The third Earl, Lucky's great-great-grandfather, does direct the catastrophic charge of the Light Brigade. It is a outright disaster. The third Earl does bring disgrace to the name of Lucan, which is almost redeemed until Lucky gets his shot. Baby John's mother is Caitlin Elizabeth Ann Dawson. Problematically at the time for Caitlin, she develops a blood clot in her lungs and spends much time hospitalized and away from her young son and family. This, perhaps in the way her son develops relationships with women, is problematic for him as well. Baby John is mostly raised by household help, especially the family's nursemaid, and then it is to preparatory schools with his older sister. But think about Baby John, born in 1934. Just a few years later, by 1939, World War II is looming down upon the Bingham family, and some decisions will need to be made. The family will evacuate the two older Bingham children, Jane and John, to Wales in 1939. Eventually, Jane and John will be joined by the two younger siblings of the Bingham family, Sally and Hugh. All four children in 1940 will depart for Toronto, Canada, although the Bingham children will soon land within New York State in the Mount Kisco area into the care of one Marcia Brady Tucker. A little side investigation into the character in this story that is Marcia Brady Tucker. You do have to wonder how a handful of children from the peerage escaping the war into the comfort and wealth of this multi-millionaires happens. Little bit of a spider web here. Marcia Brady, born in about 1883, has the most curious biography. I can place from one source, being the New York Times, that Marcia Brady is in fact the daughter of Diamond Jim Brady. Marcia Brady will grow up and marry Carl Tucker. Carl Tucker is the founder of Consolidated Edison. He is a financier with his own stock brokerage. But once Marcia Brady and Carl Tucker marry, any mention of Marcia Brady Tucker's life before her marriage is wiped out. But you wonder how the Binghams get there? It makes a lot of sense, if in fact that one source is correct, that Marcia Brady Tucker is the daughter of Diamond Jim Brady. Diamond Jim Brady is legendary in a previous time. Diamond Jim, never been married, he's loaded, he's wealthy, he is a Gilded Age railroad businessman and stock market investor. Diamond Jim Brady is known for a few things. Number one, his very large appetite, as well as his collection of jewels 
and how he gains them and how he sells them too. Diamond Jim was a running buddy of Stanford White and for a while raised a little ruckus with Lillian Russell, famous performer of her day. Again, the New York Times archives will source Marsha Brady Tucker as Diamond Jim's daughter, and if so, I get how Marsha Brady is loaded even before her marriage to Carl Tucker and is able to show a particular lifestyle to the Bingham children. Marsha, as an aside, is also super involved in bird watching. She and her husband have a number of horses and a ton of Gilded Age connections. What I want you to know is that the Bingham children are wanting for nothing during their time within Canada and the United States during World War II. Comparatively to war-torn England, the Bingham kids are having a wonderful life. Summer camps and private schools. The children are fairly well set up, living with the kind of money and access that Marsha Brady Tucker is equipped to show them. This wonderful life of comfort only lasts until the war is over. In February 1945, the Bingham children return into a desolate and stark England. Rationing is on. The Bingham home has been bombed. Another home of theirs has been mostly destroyed. A few other things happening that might be a little bit challenging for the children here as well. Marsha Brady Tucker is not only a multi-millionaires, cash out the wazoo, but Marsha's proclivities to religion ran to Christianity. John's parents, Lord and Lady Lucan, are a bit more austere. They're not showing off any type of the wealth that they might have. They're a little different. They're a little more left-wing. And John, in his early teenage years, will begin to suffer nightmares. He is treated by a psychotherapist at this point. It's not really a good time for young lad John. He has an ill mother, an absent father. He's returning into a ravaged land. And quite a contrast from the life that he has been living with access to the finer things readily available. It is off to Eton College for John, which is potentially a pretty unusual choice. Again, John's parents, the sixth Earl Lucan and his wife, are pretty left-wing. They are considered socialist of the time and Eaton College is the exact opposite of that. But John is not like his parents. He is looking to find a way to be different. John will adopt very hardcore right-wing views while attending Eaton. Again, he's had a whole run of years within the United States being exposed to finer things. And, well, at Eaton, John will find some friends and also begin dipping his toes into his life of trouble, of danger. John at Eaton figures out that he loves the rush of gambling. And he wins some, sure. John is also bookmaking a little bit. He thinks it's a great way to earn a little bit of extra cash for some sweeties and smokes. This will evolve a little bit. John feels like it's no big deal to leave school to go bet on horses at the track. 
John Bingham loves the risk and the gamble. He is getting a rush on it. Besides the new hobby of gambling, John is actually meeting some friends at Eaton Now too. These names are going to become very important in our story. Let me introduce you to Jimmy Goldsmith, Dominic Ellis, Mark Burley, just to name a few. Many of these chaps are the set that John hangs with forever. They're his early friends. They're his longtime friends. They are the Eaton boys, and they stick together. Young John does have quite an example in Jimmy Goldsmith when it comes to gambling. See, Jimmy Goldsmith, while he's at Eaton, he likes the tracks too. And old Jimmy, he is going to win huge one day. He makes a 10-pound bet that will garner, in a very lucky day at the track, 8,000 pounds. Jimmy will take the entire Eaton College out for one good time, and Jimmy, with plenty of money, says, I no longer feel the need for formal education, and boogies on out of Eaton College in 1949 at the age of 16. John Bingham maybe gets some ideas. Honestly, wasting your days at the track might be a whole lot more fun, and quite frankly, John isn't that great of a student. He's not really into his studies. John will undertake his national service in 1953, becoming a second lieutenant in his own father's regiment, the Coldstream Guards. John Bingham will spend a little time stationed in West Germany, enjoying the local customs, and also begins to add to his gambling repertoire another particular game, that of poker. Hi, I'm Chris Gethard, and I'm very excited to tell you about Beautiful Anonymous, a podcast where I talk to random people on the phone. I tweet out a phone number, thousands of people try to call, I talk to one of them, they stay anonymous, I can't hang up, that's all the rules. I never know what's going to happen. We get serious ones. I've talked with meth dealers on their way to prison. I've talked to people who survived mass shootings crazy funny ones. I talk to a guy with a goose laugh, somebody who dresses up as a pirate on the weekends. I never know what's going to happen. It's a great show. Subscribe today. Beautiful Anonymous. Oh, John, living on the edge. He is definitely now, as a 20-something-year-old man, developed a taste for the rush, the thrill. Gambling becomes his addiction. Partially, this has helped along a bit by an astounding hand that will give Lucky his nickname. After fulfilling his year in the National Service, John Bingham comes on back to London and in 1954 will find a very cushy job at a London-based merchant bank. This is a pretty good life. John by day, making 500 pounds a year as a 20-year-old, this is a little over 15,000 pounds a year today, which to be fair is not a livable wage. But don't forget to mention here that John has some family money. That's only during the day, the cushy job at the merchant bank. By night, John is squiring debutantes around swinging London. John could be enjoying this life of squiring ladies by night, pretty cushy job during the day, an elevated, easy-working lifestyle. Doesn't really go that way. John likes long lunch breaks. John's not that great at banking in the first place. 
And John thinks, quite frankly, gambling is a lot more fun. So we started John's addiction back with the ponies, first at Eaton College, now with the introduction of poker through the National Guard, John's tastes really have evolved. It is in 1960 that the 26-year-old John Bingham meets the older Stephen Raphael, who will become a good friend to John. Stephen Raphael is rich. He's a stockbroker by trade, and Stephen's game is backgammon. Stephen being a little bit older, John Bingham really looks up to Stephen as a father figure. Maybe on Stephen's part, he gets to play a little with the younger kids, having fun in the world. Stephen and John, they travel together. They go to the Bahamas together. They play together. They golf. They water ski. There's cards and dice and poker and horses and all that good stuff, too. Stephen Raphael is the connection that is going to get John Bingham to John Aspinall, who is running a gambling casino endeavor in 1960, just not legally. This begs the question, why work when you can gamble for your living? So John Bingham does lose a lot of money, although he does win sometimes too. John will take out loans to cover his losses, but it is in this same year, 1960, that John Bingham has a really good turn at the tables. This one particular night, John Bingham will win 26,000 pounds. John is 26 years old and about to be living the good life. Having recently been passed over for a promotion at his merchant banking job, John Bingham, who's now known as Lucky Lucan, takes a trip on his winnings. He's actually going to go back to the United States to visit his old friend and patroness, Marsha Brady Tucker. Here within the U.S., he will drive some fancy cars, race some cool boats, visit his sister as well. Upon Lucky's return to England, he is going to say goodbye to living with his austere socialist mother and father in St. John's Wood, and Lucky will be moving himself into a flat in Park Crescent, closer to all of the action. Where is the action? In 1962, it is in the latest swinging London Berkeley Square hotspot, the Claremont Club. John Aspinall is the man behind the Claremont Club, and friends, I need you to know that this is a scene with a capital S. The Claremont Club is Britain's most exotic gambling club. Originally opened by John Aspinall in 1960, the Claremont Club is said to have its original membership from five dukes, five marquises, almost 20 earls, and two cabinet ministers. The Claremont Club is frequented by men who thought they would revolutionize the world through their aristocracy and big ideas? Who's playing here in this disaffected gang of right-wingers? We have Jimmy Goldsmith. We have Tiny Rowland. We have Jim Slater. We have David Sterling as well, not to mention a few other folks that we've learned about before in this story. Stephen Raphael, Dominic Elwes too. These are the Mayfair set. All of these dudes are essential in the power transference from the old British industrialists and politicians 
into a new system happening at this time. This group is into playing financial markets in such a way that will change global economics. They want to take everything corporate, these fellas. They are a new breed of pirates. And the early 1960s, it's the time for it. Welcome to modern global economics. And it's all going down at the Claremont Club. This is the clubhouse. This is the playhouse of this set of big thinkers and doers, risk takers. They want to change the world. They live hard and they play hard. And they do a lot of that in John Aspinall's club. But it's not only them. It's a pretty fancy place. You have the young and old mixing over luxurious settings, dinners, and, well, the love of the game of chance and risk. Everybody's brought together by gambling. Aspinall will do his part in this new big piracy idea by helpfully cleaning a lot of the aristocracy out of their cash. And wowza, does it finance Aspinall's manic pixie fever dreams. See, the Claremont Club is exclusive. It's sophisticated. It is the place to be in 1960, and even more so in 1962, when Aspinall is finally given an official license to make it a legal gambling spot. The Claremont Club is discreet on the outside, opulent on the inside, and most definitely the place to be. It is members only. It'll cost you 60 guineas a year, which is a pretty hefty sum at that point. There is a magnificent piece from Joseph Bullmore from thegentlemansjournal.com. This piece is called The House of Cards Inside Mayfair's Fabled Claremont Club, And here I really think it sets the scene for you to get the visual of this legendary place. The subhead of this particular piece by Bullmore reads, Wild beasts, squandered fortunes, international playboys, military coups, as a modern version of the storied Claremont Club opens down on Barclay Square, we revisit the ghost of its gambler's past. My goodness, here we go. This is from Joseph Bullmore. It was a useless life, says Taki Theodorakopoulos, the Greek shipping heir and last of the playboys, but a very, very pleasant one. For the Claremont Club, perhaps the grandest, oofiest gambling den in the history of London, this is high praise indeed. The uselessness is built in, of course. A high-end casino exists solely to move money from rich, tipsy people with inheritances to richer, more sober people with CCTV cameras and panic rooms and sympathetic smiles. It is a place of distraction and oblivion, where the game is all and the money is simply a side effect, a symptom, a MacGuffin. There is no wider societal good. No great point or modern-day purpose. No economic trickle-down particularly. Just the constant dribble of someone else's krug. Useful? Who wants useful? That's what members of the public are for. We're just here to have a lovely time. Uselessness 
is the last great indulgence. Lower the blinds, dear boy. The sun's coming up. As for pleasantness, in the case of the Claremont, pleasant is an understatement. This is pampering, engulfing, comforting, swaddling. It is silk sheets and warm milk. Some bosomy, lovely nanny of the soul. Completed in 1740, 44 Barclay Square was the final Palladian townhouse ever designed by William Kent, the great Mayfair architect. A little over two centuries later, it was bought by John Aspers Aspinall to house a planned gambling establishment and monument to some forgotten England. The laws on gambling in the UK had just changed, in part to the wranglings of Aspinall himself, charged with gaming offenses in the 1950s. He wriggled off the hook so successfully that the wider legislation was altered, meaning the Claremont and its ilk could bat happily on. Aspers threw open doors in 1962, and the first thing to strike you was the decor. Arranged around a central sweeping double staircase, the interiors of the Claremont Club were high pomp and utter luxury, an inviting English country house elevated by Louis XIV furniture and filigreed carpets. Osborne and Little took care of the design, of course, curving gold-leafed wallpaper around Romanesque pillars and busts from antiquity but the finest exhibits were always the members themselves. A self-selecting cast of constant fixtures and florid old boys. Captains of industry and creaking aristos, young bucks and friendly rakes. That feeling one had, says Manolia Olympitus, the former merchant banker and one-time Mayfair gambling legend, was that you were walking into your own drawing room and you were seeing your pals, secure in the fact that they would never let anyone in you didn't like. Lord Lucky Lucan, more, much more of whom later, was said by Aspinall to be quote-unquote good furniture, well-bred, old Atonian bait that conjured the correct ambiance and encouraged the right breed of sap. He was what was known as a blue, a house player, gambling with the Claremont's own money in order to keep more liquid individuals at the Chamin de Fer tables. Shemmy to you. You only had old Atonians as blues, remembers Taki. Charles Benson, the Lausch, jet-setting racing reporter, was a blue too and another who I won't mention because he's currently in the House of Lords. But they played correctly. There was no cheating or anything. We used to say, are you having blinner tonight? He laughs. That was dinner with a blue. All the food was terrific with the best wines, he adds later. All free, you never paid for anything, until you went upstairs. Holy cats, there's a lot to unpack here on this one. Okay, so I want you to see the sweeping double staircase. I want you to see the bus from antiquity, the rich carpets, all the blues. This home is the last William Kent house in London. It's an incredible place. 
But that's the upstairs where the Claremont Club is. But there's a downstairs too, y'all, which is almost as legendary. The Lady Annabelle that was mentioned in the very beginning of this episode, shown in that photograph with Lord Lucan that Dunn references, is Lady Annabelle Vane Tempest Stewart. Lady Annabelle is the namesake of the downstairs club at the Claremont Club. Annabelle's opens in 1963 by Annabelle's first husband, friend of John Aspinall, friend of Lucky Lucan, Mark Burley. It is the nightclub Annabelle's that is the hot spot in London for years. A private, members-only club. Think of it as the Daisy, but in London. It has a famous history, Annabelle's. Prince Charles in his younger days partied there. Annabelle's is reportedly the only nightclub Queen Elizabeth ever attended. Annabelle herself is the daughter of an Anglo-Irish peer, just like Lucan. They're traveling in the same sets here, y'all. Annabelle is the daughter of the 8th Marquess of Londonderry. Annabelle will make her debut in 1952 at a debutante ball attended by Queen Elizabeth II. Annabelle will make her first marriage in 1954 to fellow Etonian Mark Burley. Annabelle becomes a famous hostess and legendary socialite on the scene, not only at the club named after her, but with her whole high society set as well. You might not know Annabelle from this marriage to Mark Burley. It is her second marriage, Annabelle's, to Jimmy Goldsmith that is even more famous. Annabelle and her husband Mark will separate in 1972. At the time, Annabelle is having an affair with Jimmy Goldsmith. Annabelle and Jimmy will marry themselves in 1978, three years after Annabelle's divorce from Mark is final. More on these two coming, but I do want to plant in here. Oddly enough, even once Mark Burley and Annabelle divorce, they remain super close friends. Mark and Annabelle talk to each other nearly every day. They vacation together routinely up until Mark's death in August of 2007. Annabelle will say it was Mark Burley's cheating that caused their breakup, that it was his perpetual unfaithfulness that is the cause. Annabelle does not take any particular accountability that it might have been the two children she had that were Jimmy Goldsmith's while she was still married to Mark Burley, or the long-term affair with Goldsmith. Different estimations on how that works out there. But I mean, it all does work out in the end, and that whole saga is fascinating, but not necessarily the story that we're in. But I wanted you to know some of these names. Jimmy Goldsmith, Lady Annabelle, they will be coming back into our story. It all connects with this tightly knit group, this lot of Eaton folks. A lot of folks that have been playing in the same peerage set, the same schools, the same balls, the same parties. I want to continue with one other bit here about this interconnectedness, this colony, so to speak, of it all. This is, again, from Bullmore from thegentlemansjournal.com. 
Lord Darby and Lord Devonshire sat at the top of the aristocratic pile, the final stand of genuine gentry wealth, alongside a breed of new businessmen like Jimmy Goldsmith and Tiny Rowland, corporate raiders James Hansen and Gordon White, and rakish regulars like Lazard's heir Dan Meinertshagen and Michael Hicks Beach. Mark Burley, Mayfair's panjandrum of taste, was a fixture too. His nightclub Annabelle's, which slithered into the basement below of the Claremont at 44 Barclay Square, was due to be connected directly to the gambling den. But at the last minute, Burley balked at being so closely connected to a casino and bricked up the stairway. It didn't matter. The membrane was so porous, the atmosphere interchangeable. Annabelle's was the Claremont with a dance floor in discreet corners. The Claremont was Annabelle's with ruinous debt. Although Asper's didn't want too many women around, recalls Taki, he said it distracted us from the gambling. Another mentioned name and somebody to get to know now, John Aspinall, Asper's. Dominic Dunn will describe John Aspinall this way in his 1993 piece. John Aspinall has been, and still is, a very controversial person in England, liked and loathed in unequal proportion. Aspinall drained money from spoiled rich people to fund his zoo and to preserve wildlife and endangered species. In his mind, human beings take second place to animals said an English peer. His private zoo, housed at his two English estates, Howlett's and Port Lim, is considered one of the finest in the world. Friends recalled a party at the Claremont Club where his second wife received her guests in evening dress and jewels with a monkey hanging around her neck. He is remembered for having fearlessly pried apart the jaws of one of his tigers, which had seized the head of the 12-year-old son of Lady Annabel Burley, the woman with Lord Lucan in the Acapulco photograph, and was crushing the bones on one side of the child's face. Once, he shot another of his tigers after it had killed two of his gamekeepers in one month. Aspers is a terrifically amusing companion and frightfully good at making people in the club feel he's their best friend but he did allow people to lose more money than they could afford, said an acquaintance. Lord Lucan was one of the spoiled rich whose money was drained, albeit willingly, and who ended up playing for the house as a titled shill at the Claremont Club right up until the day of the murder. But we're not to the murder yet. We have a bunch of interconnected players in this scene, this set. And it is in 1963 that John Bingham, now known as Lucky, is having the time of his life, in one respect or another, playing in the scene. But Lucky, at this point, is 29, and maybe getting a little pressure put on as the oldest son in the Bingham family to settle down and start a family. Enter Veronica Duncan. Veronica Duncan, 26 years old. And about at that point where, she will say, society will tell a gal that she's 
approaching an age where she may be best set on the shelf. Veronica has a sister, Christina, who has married another peer named William Shan Kidd. It is at a country house party weekend at Christina and William's that Veronica spots Lucky. Veronica recalls that he looked rather apart. He looked different than the other guys. Christina will have a conversation with Veronica and is like sister. Let me spill the straight tea on this one. Lucky has socialist parents. He's a professional gambler. He doesn't even have a real job. A lot of people say he's queer. Maybe he's not the best guy for you to get involved with. Sisters sometimes might know what's best for you. Christina tries to warn Veronica off. Veronica will later say that none of that queer thing was true. Quote, he was a fine specimen of a man, unquote. That country house party weekend at the Shan Kids does go well enough, and Lucky will ask Veronica to have dinner the following Tuesday. The two begin to date, and it is after one particular lunch, Lucky asks to drive Veronica home. They get to his house. Lucky will pick up the phone, call the Claremont Club, and pass along a message to tell the boys I won't be coming tonight. Veronica recalls that Lucky picks her up and takes her to the bedroom. I would say that the love affair is on. However, (laughs) I don't know how much these two really like each other, even from the very beginning. They do seem to have a mutual affection for sex, along with perhaps some other imago and inner dynamics. Not my place to make a judgment, but what I want you to know is that Lucky and Veronica, they're the new couple on the scene. At this particular time, 1963, within the courtship of the couple, there is a big boat race coming up, the Daily Express Harbor Race. Lucky Lucan is a boater. He's a big-time boater, and Lucky is so convinced that he is going to be lucky and win this boating race that he in fact hires an airplane, not just an airplane, but also a film crew, to film his entire boat race so no one misses one wave on his miraculous ride to glory. During the boat race, sure enough, it does look like Lucky is going to come in first on his boat, called the White Migrant. Lucky looking set to win the whole thing, but Lucky as we will find out, maybe isn't so lucky. He punctures a hole in the boat, and the entire white migrant is sunk before they can make it across the finish line. Luckily enough, though, (laughs) for Lucky, the white migrant was insured for 9,000 pounds. And with this windfall, certainly enough, why not? Let's go ahead and take our coupledom into a new level, Lucky and Veronica decide to get married. Veronica, like a lot of other girls in her day, considers accepting a marriage proposal from a peer of the realm as a major coup. Lucky Lucan's set of friends do not necessarily feel the same way. It is not a real popular move among the Claremont set. 
See, Veronica has had just as troubled of a childhood as Lucky, if not more so. Her father dies in a car accident when she's very young, and Veronica's family will move to South Africa. Veronica's mother will remarry, and at that point it is back to England. Veronica's new stepfather is a hotel manager in Guilford. Veronica, as a young girl, as a young woman, is very talented within art. And her older sister, Christina, is in the Swing in London set. Christina has performed quite a coup herself to marry William Shan Kidd. William Shan Kidd is the half-brother to Peter Shan Kidd, the stepfather of Diana Spencer, future Princess of Wales. This whole set, the peerage, the aristocracy, this moving and playing with this group for Veronica is a little bit of an awkward girl who likes art. I can imagine all of this feels pretty spectacular. Of course she will think this proposal is a coup. The engagement with Lucky and Veronica comes pretty quickly. It is announced in the Times and the Daily Telegraph October the 14th of 1963, with the wedding following just a few weeks later, November the 20th, 1963. Lucky and Veronica are married at the Holy Trinity Church in Brompton. Dominic Dunn will write, Lady Lucan, about whom a decent word was and is rarely spoken, especially by her husband's friends, was variously described to me as nervous, high-strung, brittle, unrelaxed, a joyless creature, a complainer, and a woman who made scenes in public, specifically at the Claremont Club. It was the old NOCD story, not our class, darling. An innkeeper's stepdaughter, She has often been quoted describing her marriage into the aristocracy as her quote-unquote elevation. On her wedding day, she was lent a magnificent diamond tiara belonging to the Lucan family. All I can remember is how heavy it was, she said at the time. It gave me a crick in the neck. Her mother-in-law, the Dowager Countess of Lucan, did not offer to lend it to her again. However, in the beginning, the bride had high expectations of her elevation. I was looking for a god, and he was a dream figure. And Lucky was that dream figure to Veronica, at least for a little while. It is a rapid courtship. These two meet and marry in 1963, and that wedding in November sparsely attended although there is one notable guest, Princess Alice of Greece, mother of Prince Philip. Princess Alice is in attendance as a friend of the Dowager Countess of Lucan. The Dowager Countess was one of Princess Alice's ladies-in-waiting. The newlyweds take off. They will spend their honeymoon in Europe as first-class passengers on the Orient Express. Another lucky benefit to this marriage, Lucky Lucan is gifted a wedding amount of cash by his father. This will buy the family's home at 46 Lower Belgrave Street in Belgravia. And well, another lucky wedding gift here, perhaps, not really, 
John Aspinall, Aspers, Lucky's grand friend, will give the newlyweds 200 pounds to spend at the Claremont Club. Lucky goes through that in no time at all and will proceed to lose another 8,000 pounds just that night. Where does he get the 8,000 pounds from? Remember, the white migrant insurance payoff for 9,000 pounds. The sunken boat will help bolster that loss, but for the newlyweds at Christmas in 1963, they are skint. Things are looking pretty bleak. The new year, 1964, though, will take a turn when January the 21st, Lucky's father, the 6th Earl of Lucan, passes away. The Earl is dead. Long live the new Earl, Richard John Bingham, the 7th Earl Lucan, known to his friends as Lucky. Lucky has a new wife, a new title, new problems. As we begin 1964, which is where we will return in the very next episode of The Vanishing of Lord Lucan on Done and Done. Until then, darlings, stay curious and keep on investigating. Thanks for listening to the Done and Done podcast, a Hemlock Creatives production. You can email us at doneanddone at gmail.com. You can follow us on Instagram at doneanddonepodcast. For further information about our episodes or sources, you can find us online at www.doneanddone.com. See you next week, friends.